We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone. It is good to be back. Welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another returning guest joining us this week, one of my personal favorites. He has also been on episode 54 and episode 143. So if you haven't caught up on the archives yet, you guys might want to check those out. In those interviews, we discussed a certain player named Bobby Fisher, who we will be discussing even more among other topics this week, because our friend and guest of the show has come out with a new book that is rightfully drawing rave reviews, Bobby Fisher and his world. Um, aside from his work as an author, um, Mr. Donaldson is the captain of, or often the captain of the U.S. Olympiad teams. He's one of the preeminent chess researchers in the world. And of course, back in the day, pretty fierce player in his own right, as we'll also be discussing. So I'm eager to discuss his book and everything else new with him. So let's welcome him back to the show. I am John Donaldson. How are you? Uh, doing well, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. 
Yeah, I'm excited to catch up and sorry it took me a little while to uh, to read your book. I've been eager to interview you, but I wanted to, to uh, give the book the treatment it deserves and make sure I was prepared to discuss it um, and had read it. And of course, it was a pleasure to read. So um, been been was looking forward to it coming out anyway. Um, and of course, we'll we'll get to your book. But John, the, the news of the week in the chess world, of course, is the uh, sad passing of uh, Grandmaster Lubomir Lubish Kovalik, who I know you were friendly with, and he comes up several times in your book and is even mentioned in the acknowledgments. Um, so for, for listeners newer to chess, um, or maybe not new to chess, but just not that aware of Grandmaster Kovalik's achievements, what, what would you tell them about him? Well, American chess has definitely lost a giant. Uh, I think uh, one way uh, that, you know, I mean, first off, uh, Grandmaster Andy Soltis is working on a piece for Chess Life for the March issue, and he's limited to 750 words for his article. And I don't envy his task because Lubosh's accomplishments were so many that, you know, you could write a couple books on him. But uh, if you think about him as a player, one thing that immediately comes to mind is that he was a three-time U.S. champion. Another thing that comes to mind is that he played on uh, seven uh, U.S. Olympiad teams and six of those teams medaled, uh, one gold and five bronze. The only team that didn't was the 1972 team, which was probably the weakest team the U.S. has sent uh, to an Olympiad uh, since the, before this, ever, probably. <laughs> I mean, maybe 1930 or something like that. So uh, uh, Kavalik was a really good team player, but I think his single most important achievement as a player was the January 1974 FIDE rating list, where he was ranked number 10 in the world. And to put that in perspective, the number of American players who were rated in the top 10 while playing for the United States is exactly six. You know, Bobby, DiCarlo, Gata, Fabiano, Wesley, and Lubash Kovalik. Those are the only Americans that have ever been rated in the top 10 in the world. So, I mean, that's pretty, pretty good company to keep. Yeah, that pretty much says it all. And I, I should have mentioned in the introduction, by the way, listeners, um, you guys may have caught that the um, in two episodes prior to this one in the feed, there is an, uh, an interview between Fred Wilson and Lubish Kovalik that um, Fred Wilson from his, his old archive, which is generally available on the Perpetual Chess Patreon page, but Fred graciously suggested I share it on the, the podcast feed in light of uh, Grandmaster Kovalik's passing. Um, so for listeners, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I definitely um, recommend you check it out. I mean, his his English is fantastic. And of course, his memory of uh, being involved on working on the team of uh, Nigel Short as he got ready to oppose Kasparov. And then they had a bit of falling out, as he discussed. And of course, working with Fisher um, in the second half of the match of the century. So there's so many great details in that interview. So definitely uh, recommend listeners um, uh, have a listen to that when they can. But uh, John, what was your personal relationship with Grandmaster Kovalik? Well, you know, the, the first time I met Lubash was in uh, Estes Park in Colorado. That was the site of several U.S. championships. And uh, in 1986, uh, I was there as the second for Yasser Sarawan. And one evening, uh, Yasser and uh, Lubash invited me to dinner. And 
we started talking about the upcoming Olympiad that would be held in Dubai. And perhaps some of the older listeners uh, will remember that this was kind of a controversial Olympiad because uh, assurances had been made early on that all members of FIDE could join and participate in this event held in the United Arab Emirates. United Arab Emirates. And, uh, uh, you know, FIDE accepted the invitation, the United States committed to play, and then all of a sudden, rather late in the day, it became apparent that Israel wouldn't be allowed to participate. And the result of that was that, you know, American players were really divided whether they should go or not. And, uh, for example, Lev Albert declined, uh, Joel Benjamin declined. And while the U.S. championship was going on, it was very unclear exactly who would be playing for the U.S. team. And so when we sat down to... Uh, eat that evening, uh, at a certain point, Dubash asked me, you know, what are you doing around the dates of the, of the Olympiad? And uh, I was, you know, rated maybe about number 25 in the United States at the time. And the idea of being captain had never even entered my mind. So when he told me what was I doing during the Olympiad, I was like, horrified because I thought, oh my gosh, so many people have declined their invitations to play in the Olympiad team that they're actually having to go to the bottom of the barrel and uh, and grab me. And Lubash, he inst instantly uh, saw the look on my face, understood what was going on, and started laughing. He said, don't worry, we're not that desperate. Uh, <laughs> he said, we want you to be captain, uh, not to play. And uh, that was a start of a wonderful friendship with Lubash. And, uh, it couldn't have been a, a better start because we, we almost won that Olympiad and that was the very last one that he played played in. So that was quite special. And uh, uh, over the course of the years, we would exchange many, many emails. And he came twice to uh, Reno uh, to an event that's held every October. It's the uh, Western States Open. It's organized by uh, Jerry and Fran Weichel. And uh, that was the last term, in fact, that he played, and it was in 1999. I mean, his career as a player really ended in about 1987, 1988 um, uh, was, the, was the end of it. I mean, he still played in the events here and there, but, but for all intents and purposes, he was no longer a full-time professional player. But, uh, uh, you know, those tournaments in Reno, I remember that, uh, you know, we got to do stuff, you know, make little trips and stuff besides the events. The, the second one, I should say, he gave a sign one, and that was in 2011. And that might have been his last, you know, public chess display, if you will. Yeah, although it, I saw in one of his uh, obituaries online that he actually made an appearance in the Czech Republic in, uh, as recently as early 2020. It looks like right before COVID hit. So I don't know if we did an actual exhibition, but he at least... Uh, was able to do a public appearance. Um, were you a, a, I don't want to get too personal about um, what what befell Grandmaster Kovalik. I understand that it was complications from from uh, cancer, but do you um, were you were you aware of health problems, John? I exchanged emails with him in late December of last year, and uh, he wasn't ill yet. So you know whatever took him was very quick, very very quick, and. Uh, uh, you know, he was very much engaged in the chess world, and, and you know, he was the same old Lubash at the end of the last year. So, you know, it, it was very sudden. Yeah, that's that's really sad to hear. And he, of course, was uh, also the 
longtime chess columnist for the Washington Post and uh, the Huffington Post. And I noticed that the Huffington Post archive, a lot of what he's written is still online. So um, as he discussed with Fred way back in 2003, um, he had some writing projects going on that, as far as I know, haven't been published yet. But you can still read his writing on Huffington Post. Um, John, do you have any information about uh, the, the the projects that he may have been working well, on? Well, I, I saw that Peter Dogger's uh... Uh, obituary mentioned uh, a long-running project that you know he tournament book for Montreal '79. This, of course, was one of the first great super tournaments, and he doubled as both a player and an organizer. He, uh, 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 you know, did quite credibly in the tournament. He had a great second half after a difficult start. Uh, uh, so that that would be you know if if indeed you know that's fairly far along, it'd be interesting to see that published. I also um, know that he published, a, you know, he worked as the editor for, there's a publishing firm, RHM, and they published a lot of great books. And one of them was a tournament book that he wrote called Vikonze 1975. And it's really, really good. I mean, it really gives you insight of what was going on in the tournament. And uh, it's one of my favorites. And uh, RHM published a, a number of, of excellent books during that time period. One they didn't publish that they had planned was a book on Tilburg 77. That book was published in Czech, in, Czech in 19, 2002, I think. Uh, but the English manuscript is somewhere around. That would be another one that I would love to see uh, see the light of day. Uh, but I, what I really hope is, you know, Lubosch mentioned that he was working on some sort of memoirs. And, you know, during the COVID times. And so I don't know how far he got along, but he's a really wonderful writer. And uh, a lot of his writings can be found in uh, uh, Chess Life and Review, as Chess Life was known then in the 1970s. And those are all available free online. The USCF has, uh, you know, uh, organ made it possible to view them. And he, he just, they were a combination of, of you know, you know, deep understanding of the game, opening erudition, and 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 just wonderful stories. I and mean, he's a very cultured man. Yeah, I hope we can. Um, I'll definitely have to dig into the uh, the online archive that U.S. Chess graciously shares. And yeah, the the obituary you mentioned by uh, Peter Doggers is uh, excellent. Definitely recommend. Uh, listeners, check that out as well. Um, before we move on to to Bobby Fischer, John, could you just give us a little more sense of uh, of what his personality was like as someone who knew him well? Well, the thing you have to realize about Lubosch is that uh, uh, I believe he was born around oh, the, right before the end of the Second World War. And he grew up in Czech, Czechoslovakia when it was one country and not split in two. And uh, you know, they were probably not easy times. And he, his father, it's my understanding, is actually he had to escape the country, you know, when the communists took over. And as a result, things were doubly difficult for Lubash. Uh, but, you know, he still, he won the Czech champion, championship when he was 19. And, uh, but when the, uh, the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968, Lubosch realized that would no longer be his home. And so he left and he settled officially in the United States in 1970. But he still always kept in contact with uh, his old homeland. And so he was good friends with uh, Milos Forman, uh, the famous film director, uh, you know, like uh, one uh, duo of the Christmas Nest and uh, 
I think Amadeus was another a movie that he uh, produced or directed. Also, Ivan Passer. Uh, I mean, all sort of Czech intellectuals he, he kept in contact with. And, uh, you know, he spoke multiple languages. He traveled all over the world. He was just a very interesting person. You, you know, curious about many different things. And, uh, you know, as, as a chess player, on the one hand, he was like a consummate professional. You know, in the 1970s, uh, most American players, you know, they played in weekend Swisses and the U.S. Championship. But he was playing in many international events, and he played in the Bundesliga team competition for many years. Uh, at a time when there were no other American players uh, playing regularly, you know, internationally. Uh, so, uh, you know, he was a very international person. I'd also say as a player, he was, he was, a, he was very much a chess artist, especially in his earlier days. I mean, his game, for example, against Grufeld from the student team championship, I think around 1964, I mean, you know, famous game. If you look in uh, learn, yeah. learn from the Grandmasters, the first edition of it, each Grandmaster was asked to select two games, one game that made the biggest impression on him and their favorite game they played. And Grufeld, who lost the game, chose that as the game that made the biggest impression on him. And also from that Vikings A tournament book, uh, he played a brilliant game against Porridge that was a draw that won the brilliancy prize. I mean, those are two games of his that immediately come to mind. Uh, in his later years as a professional, he was more uh, a little more technical, and he, he was a very good technician. He had very good end game technique. Uh, so I sort of think of these sort of, this sort of duality. On the one hand, he was a real professional, but he was also like a chess artist as well. Yeah, that Goofeld game is something special. There's, um, I know Sam Copeland did a YouTube video. So however listeners like to take in a game, whether you're just playing through the moves or seeking out a video, uh, definitely it, it merits replaying uh, a few times as uh, Andy Soltis was uh, was quoted saying. And um, speaking of Andy Soltis, um, one thing I, I, you may or may not uh, know all the details of this, John, but um, the, the fame story of um, Lubish, um, how he emigrated using vodka to uh, bribe um, some some guards as he crossed the border. Um, I know that this was written in one of Andy Soltis's books, as uh, Peter Doggers mentioned, and he mentioned that Lubish had written about it a little bit. It was one thing that that did not come up in his interview with uh, Fred Wilson. Are you privy to the details offhand about exactly how that all went mm -hmm. down? Because it's an amazing story. Yeah, it was a little bit before my time. Uh, you know, it would have been in. I started playing in 72 and, and this was a few years before. Uh, so I don't really, you know, I only know what I've read online, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, you know, as, as far as that went, but I, I do know that, uh, you know, it was a tough decision in the sense that uh, he, you know, he had already played in the inner zonal. He'd already played in several Olympiads, uh, but still, you know, in, in you know, and the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, to be fair, it wasn't a, uh, they didn't have quite the support that they did in the Soviet Union, but still, for a player from the East to come to the West, you know, the life of a professional player was, was precarious, especially before the, uh, the match in 1972. Yeah, and then he pursued his education here in the U.S. Um, definitely showed um, a lot of initiative, and I'm glad that he managed to uh, maintain a foothold in the chess world as uh, such a such an incredible um, talent and a brilliant man who could have done many things. Right. Well, I mean, one thing I also didn't mention was his uh, organizational abilities, and uh, uh, those 
you know, I, I, you know, the Grand Masters Association, uh, the GMA that he was involved with. I mentioned that Montreal 79 tournament. Uh, you know, he, he, he contributed to the game in many different ways. Yeah. So, um, so listeners definitely worth um, reading up and listening up about uh, Grandmaster Kovalik, but I also want to discuss uh, John's book, of course. So John, we're, um, I've got many questions for you about your, your brand new book, but first let's take a break. In case you are not familiar with our friends and sponsors, aimchess.com, we wanted to take a quick break to tell you about what they do. What they do is they collect your games from leechess or chess.com, your site of choice, and look for data-driven trends of things you can work on, such as converting an advantage, a specific opening, possibly tactics, whatever it may be. They create personalized lessons based on your games and even review positions from your games where you may have made a mistake. So I love the product and there's a free version that you can check out. And if you like it, you can subscribe to Aim Chess. If you use the promo code CHESS30, you can save 30% on the cost and they will know you came from Perpetual Chess. The details will be in the show notes, but for now, let's get back to the interview. So John, as we mentioned, your book was already um, already selected chess.com 2020 book of the year. Congratulations on that. I've seen some great reviews online. And for listeners wondering, it is a combination of games and biography. Um, I know that uh, some, some, some people prefer each, to be honest, because there's some people who are always looking for chess audiobooks, for example, but there are others who feel like it's not a true chess book uh, unless you can see some games. So it's, it's nice to have the blend of both. And John, um, you know, a few months back, I had a uh, esteemed author, Frank Brady, another Fisher biographer, another of the most um, respected and um, preeminent Fisher biographers on the show. And I know that that you guys are in contact and he's in your acknowledgments as well. So having had that perspective recently on the show and just um, sort of as a grounding point, one, one thing I was curious about is, are there any facts of uh, Fisher's life that you and Frank uh, differ on? Uh well, first, let me take one step back, uh, uh, if I could, may. Uh, I was honored to receive that award from the uh, uh, chess.com. But, you know, I must say that I looked at all the books that were on that short list for the best of 2020. And this last year was an exceptional year for, uh, uh, I don't know if it was because of COVID or it just it, the stars uh, aligned perfectly. But the books uh, uh, by uh, Boris Gelfand with Jacob Agard. Uh, there's a fantastic book on Smyslov. Uh, you know, just there were so many good books this last year. I mean, it was great I won, but it was probably because of Bobby. <laughs> well, that's modest of you to say, but I agree. Those are also great books. And um, Stuart Rachel's uh, book was really good. There, it was definitely hard to choose, but um, but rightfully deserved. <laughs> but um, but that's nice of you to say. Right. Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is that Endgame was written a while back. And uh, so Frank may have adjusted some of his uh, viewpoints uh, that he expressed in that book uh, as a result of evidence that's come forward, uh, you, know, you know, in the last couple of years. And so I think one uh, point where my book differs from uh, Frank, but Frank might have a different opinion on that now is uh, the role of who is Bobby Seconds in Reykjavik. And, you know, traditionally it was always held to be uh, 
William Lombardi, and indeed Lombardi was uh, one of Bobby's seconds in uh, uh, Iceland, but he wasn't the only one. And uh, it's it's clear that Lubash was the second, uh, uh, you know, from game 13 onwards. And evidence of that can actually be seen in the writings of Lombardi himself. Uh, if you go back, there was an article he wrote about uh, the match in, I think it was 1974, it appeared in Sports Illustrated. And he mentions how he and Bobby were analyzing uh, the adjourned position from the very complicated game 13. And uh, at some point, uh, around two or three in the morning, he said, let's call Kabbalik. And uh, to put things in perspective, uh, Lubash was not at the match for the first half. He was working for uh, Radio Free Europe at the time. And the first half of the match was covered by Radio Free Europe by his boss, who was not a real chess player, but thought it'd be pretty cool to be in Reykjavik in the summer of 1972. So he only sent uh, uh, Lubash for the second half of the match. Uh, so the way I see it is, is that Lombardi had a you know tremendous contributions to Bobby's success in the match, if for no other reason that he persuaded him after forfeiting the second game to continue onward. That itself was, you know, he earned his keep and more. But as far as the technical chess analysis, uh, you know, in the second half of the match, Rubash would have been a, 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 a better analyst at that time. He was definitely a stronger player. I mean, that's not any disrespect at all to, uh, uh, um, you know, to Lombardi, but, you know, you can look at the respective ratings and also the fact that, you know, Lombardi was, you know, he's a, he had his uh, clerical responsibilities. He wasn't playing regularly in tournaments and uh, he was, you know, a, a last minute choice by, by Fisher to be his second. Uh, so, so definitely Lubash being Bobby's Second, that's one difference between my book and uh, Endgame. But like I say, I think that, you know, in view of information that came out after Endgame, that Frank probably would uh, would acknowledge that the, the role that Lubash had to play now. Yeah, I mean, and as you were saying just before we started recording, you were, you're struck by the fact that even in the course of writing this book, you're you're still making new discoveries about Fisher all the time. So I'm, I'm sure for Frank, that feeling is magnified. Um, can you think of examples of, uh, of uh, new, new, new facts on earth since the uh, publication of this uh, great book? Well, I mean, so, fortunately there weren't, at least to my knowledge, knock on wood, there weren't too many uh, egregious errors in the book, but there were a couple small ones. And one was that I wrote in there that when uh, Steve Brandwine played Blitz with Bobby, uh, around 1980, 79, uh, that uh, 81 maybe even, uh, that uh, uh, Fisher was playing the black side of the poison pawn. And I mentioned that, you know, this is uh, not something that Fisher ever played in his tournament practice. Turns out that was not true. About a week after I sent it to the publisher, uh, I discovered he actually played one game on the black side of the poison pawn in 1967 against Minich. And, uh, Lubash, again, he kind of helped to put things in perspective. It turns out in 1967, the theory of the night or there was no real consensus, uh, consensus of what Black's best choice against six bishop g5 was at the time. And so Bobby, even Bobby was kind of moving around trying different lines to play as Black. And that one time he played against uh, uh, Minich. 
Another thing that uh, I made a mistake on uh, was that I had the impression that Jackie Beers uh, had pretty much dropped out of the chess scene, you know, in the early 1970s, like another Fisher uh, friend, James Gore, had. But in fact, that wasn't true. He he was still still playing here and there, and he played all the way into the uh, uh, mid 1990s. I'm assuming that he died around 95 because he his 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 record uh, stops there in the USCF MSA. But I should have checked there. And also, he was a stronger player than I gave him credit for. It looks like he was uh, at least 2100 plus and might have been a master at one point. Okay. Well, as far as 630 page books go, if those if those are the only mistakes, I mean, I'm sure uh, the principles involved uh, appreciate your correcting it, but uh, but it could be worse. Well, it's, it's in terms of errors of fact, there are. I mean, there's a few little grammatical gremlins slipped in, but uh, already it looks like the first printing of the book is uh, is is sold out, and so I was asked to uh, uh, by my uh, publisher to put a uh, uh, you know a list of errata and stuff. So I've sent that. So hopefully the second printing will be cleaner, and it will also you know eliminate some of these these little details that I should have gotten right. Uh, okay, because I did see a couple people in the Facebook chess collect chess book collectors group mention that they say they'll get their book in March or something. So that explains it. And uh, your publisher, of course, is uh, Silman James. Um, so none other than Jeremy Silman is involved. Or um, is are you are you interfacing with him personally, or is he kind of hands off these days? I know he he retired from his chess dot com column. Well, Jeremy's a dear friend and uh, like forty years standing, but it's actually his wife. It is the driving force behind this, uh, Gwen Feldman. And I'm eternally grateful for her for what she did for the book. I mean, uh, she was the one, I gave her like all these photos that I had, you know, discovered that were low resolution that I thought would just turn out like, you know, just pure mud. Uh, and she managed to, to bring them to life. She uh, also put together a lot of interesting illustrations. I'm kind of a visual person. And so, you know, I really appreciated some of the work she did there. Also, I've never had a book. I mean, I've written close to 40 books, of which most of them are modest sellers, shall we say. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I never had one that actually would lay flat properly. And one thing I really like about this book is that when I'm looking at it and I'm studying or playing over a game, it actually sits down flat and doesn't move around. And so... Um, I, I just really appreciate, you know, she had a lot of good editorial suggestions, but just the visual feel of the book, I, I really appreciate. Yeah, beautiful pictures and a beautiful book and a pleasure to read. And listeners, I'll just go ahead and tease now that at the end of the show, uh, we're going to... Um, we're going to do another book giveaway as I did when I interviewed FM uh, Andre Tarakov about uh, the aforementioned Smith's Love book. Um, but bringing it back to to your Fisher book, John, um, we've got a couple of listener questions, um, Patreon supporter questions. So I'd like to dive into the first one, which is from uh, Matthias Plach. So thank, thank you for the support, Matthias. And Matthias's question is, uh, which of today's elite chess players is comparable to Bobby Fischer in style of play? Oh, gosh. Uh, oh, that's that's really hard. You know, I mean, uh, you know, times are so different now. Uh, you know, you would think that the player that could be potentially the closest to him in style uh, would have been uh, Peter Lecko. 
because Lakos, the only world-class grandmaster I'm aware of who actually trained with Bobby. You know, if you, uh, uh, there was a, uh, if you go to YouTube, there's like a short clip from, uh, I think it's from like a Chess 24 uh, show that he did, uh, Leko did with uh, Jan Gustafsson. And in there, Gustafsson says, you know, I heard this rumor that like Fisher stayed with your family. And uh, it was near the end of Bobby's, uh, uh, you know, last days in Hungary. I mean, it was like around 1999, maybe. And uh, uh the Leko family lived in uh, Zeged in uh, Hungary, and uh, uh, Bobby was, from what Peter said, frequently his guest, and uh, they analyzed uh, quite a bit. And Peter didn't come to him and said, like, you know, today we're going to look at the night arf, you know, let's look at this, this, and this line. He just, like, he would just be looking at positions and, and just taking his lead from Bobby, but he was really impressed with his understanding. And I, I think I remember one anecdote he described it being a very warm summer day in Zegen. The temperature was close to 100 and there was, you know, the air conditioning was modest and uh, Fisher dozed off as Leko was working and, and, and Leko didn't disturb him. And then Leko kept analyzing and he got to some very complicated position and he was looking at it with a computer and everything. And then Fisher woke up and he said, oh, what are you looking at? And then he started said, oh, and he started looking at the position and after like a couple of minutes, he said, well, I think this is what the best play is for both sides. And Leko was kind of dumbfounded because he was spot on with his assessment of the position. So, you know, you know Bobby's judgment was, was, was still good, you know, uh, you know, in his later years. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting story. And yeah, I, I didn't send you that question in advance. And I did feel like it kind of put you on the spot a little bit. I mean, of course, there's the famous uh, Miguel Nidorf quote about Bobby Fischer's playing style uh, that I believe um, is is in your book where where he says uh, that's a longer quote than this, but where he says perfection has no style. Right. Well, I think that all, all the top players today, you can see some of Fisher in them in the sense that when he was a at, his, at the top of his game in 1972, he had a, a very large opening repertoire for the time. You know, in those days, players usually only played a couple systems with white and black. And, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, I mean, they didn't have access to the, you know, computer databases and chess engines. And it was a much more uh, difficult uh, experience to learn a new opening system. And yet, uh, uh, Fisher. You know, you could look at the match with uh, Spassky, uh, especially in the second half. He was kind of like a moving target with Black, you know, playing Pierces and Elekines in addition to his uh, his Sicilians. And even in the Sicilian, you know, he wasn't just playing the Nidor, but in the last game he played the Taimana. Uh, of course, today, you know, all professionals have to play, you know, multiple, you know, weapons with white and black. And so in that sense, I think, uh, uh, you know, the professionals today, you know, Bobby anticipated them by 50 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And had to work a lot harder to keep up, to, to figure out the, uh, the openings. Yeah. Um, one more from Matthias Plock. He also asked, uh, he said, would Bobby Fischer like to play in the Magnus Carlsen's champion chess tour or was he against faster time controls? I, I think Bobby was, was perfectly okay with faster time controls. I mean, he loved to play blitz. And uh, uh, he was not only a, a really strong blitz player, but 
but he was an exceptionally fast flutes player. And what I mean by that is that, uh, it, you know, even when he was playing, for example, in the famous Hersig Novi Blitz tournament in 1970, in many of the games, he only spent two and a half or three minutes. And that also explains that time uh, differential, explains why uh, when he uh, was playing against uh, Andy Soltis and against uh, Walter Shipman, for example, Shipman was winning in the, that was the one draw in the, uh, the New York 1970 uh, uh, Blitz tournament was held for the uh, grand reopening of the Manhattan Chess Club. Shipman, if you look at the final position, it's incomprehensible why Shipman would have, you know, agreed to a draw because he was winning in the position. But he was about to lose on time because, you know, they didn't play with an increment. Uh, uh, so, you know, Fisher had several minutes ahead of the, on, on the clock against Shipman in that situation. Uh, so I would say definitely, you know, I don't know that Bobby... I'm trying to think if he he did play some 30-30 uh, tournaments and 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 uh, game 60 tournaments or 60-60 actually they call them because they didn't have uh, sudden death in those days. But he played at E4 Locks Lincoln uh, a log cabin chess club around 57-58. He played in some of those events. Uh, you know, of course they didn't have uh, uh, increment time controls and they didn't have. Uh, with a plethora of, uh, of rapid chess events, but I think he would be uh, perfectly amenable to, to that sort of thing. I think he'd enjoy it. Yeah, unfortunately, I do wonder how he would have handled, um, you know, thoughts about people cheating if they're playing online, given given um, his general concerns, some of them, you know, justified, but um, the fact of not being able to see the opponents, I think, might have um, might have uh, affected him, given uh, how persnickety he could be about playing conditions. That's certainly true. Just a quick break to hear about the latest and greatest from our friends at Chessable.com. Of course, the big news is that they have released the much-anticipated iOS app for your iPhone or iPad. I checked it out, and it runs very smoothly. Great way to review your openings or your endgames or whatever you are working on. There's also some new offerings from Chessable, including Lifetime Repertoires Part 2 for C4 and Knight F3 by I am Christoph Zalecki and FM Karsten Hansen. The Chess Toolbox 2 is out. And of course, if you want to get your Bobby Fischer fix, apropos of this interview, with I am Donaldson. There's always my great predecessors by world champion Gary Kasparov. That's all for now. Let's get back to the interview right now. So there's so much stuff from this book, John, that I that I could ask you about, but I I, I did just want to try to highlight a couple of stories that I think listeners might find of uh, of particular interest. Um, one of which, um, you know, you 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 quote at length this uh, this great essay by Lou Hayes, um, which I believe was also or similarly quoted in uh, American Chess Magazine when they did a special Bobby Fischer issue where he talks about the role that he had in arranging Fischer's uh, rematch with uh, Boris Spassky. And in that, there's a story of Fischer possibly uh, playing your old friend Yasser Sarawan. So being that Yasser's so beloved by uh, chess fans, I thought they, they might be interested in hearing more about that. Well, you know, you know, Yasser is one of the few, you know, children of Bobby, if you will. You know, players that, that started playing in 1972 that actually saw Fisher and spoke with him. The only other player, you know, of, of Fisher's children that uh, 
actually did, and only just very briefly, is Larry Christensen. Uh, you know, of course, for a later generation, uh, Alex Scherzer, uh, you know, uh, American grandmaster who, who was very strong in the early 1990s, he lived in Budapest in the 90s, and he actually spent a considerable amount of time with uh, uh, Bobby. But in, in the uh, case of Yasser, uh, I didn't really, you know, this is, of course, before the match in, in, in uh, Sveti Stefan that they would have made the arrangements uh, because Lou's only talking about things that happened before that match. And, you know, I don't, I don't really know the, the details of it. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not that, you know, aware of, of, of how far things got along. But I will say this, uh, you know, just as in 1972, in 1992, that match easily could not have taken place. And one of the people who really, you know, deserves credit for, for making it happen was Lou. I mean, both he and uh, Bob Ellsworth, uh, you know, really uh, made it possible for Zita to visit the United States. And she made sure that, uh, you know, that she and uh, that she and Bobby, you know, felt comfortable. And uh, I think that without that, you know, matchmaking, if you will, uh, that uh, I don't think there was any way that Bobby was going to ever go to Yugoslavia to play the match. Yeah. And I mean, just as a, as a Fisher fan, setting aside your work as a researcher and biographer, do you, are you glad that he played those additional games, John? Well, I, I am. I mean, I think the first thing is that uh, I'm glad because they provided him uh, uh, financial stability that he had, uh, uh, been searching for, 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 for a long, long time. And I also am glad in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, it gave a lot of people a chance to see him one more time. Uh, I think that when one judges the uh, quality of play in the match, it's very important, as I mentioned in the book, to keep in mind the time control they were playing with. And, uh, you know, it was the first time really that the increment clock had been used and they were guinea pigs if you will and one thing they definitely underestimated was the length of time that some of the games could go and so i mentioned in the book that you know normally professional players at that time they were used to playing a five-hour session they would play 40 or 45 moves two and a half hours and then they would adjourn well, of course, we don't have a Germans now, but but that was the the, the the model that was used. And oftentimes you would play a couple days in a row in the tournament at this tempo, and then you would have a day set aside for adjournments. But this match in 1992, there were no adjournments. And so there was the one game that a lot of naysayers point out where Fisher really looks bad, and that's the Queen Anne game where he's a couple pawns up and he doesn't win it. And... Certainly, he didn't play very well in the, in the technical phase of that game. But you have to keep in mind that I, the, I, I don't have the book in front of me here, but I want to say the game went like eight and a half hours at a stretch. And if you look at all the great world champions, you know, whether it's you know from Alekhine, Capablanca, Badvinik, uh, even Karpov and Kasparov, they never had to play a single session game anywhere near that long. And I think, you know, if you see Bobby at the uh, uh, 
the, the post-mortem, you know, when the uh, press is, is interviewing, he just looks exhausted. He just looks like, you know, he's just ready to collapse. So I think that's one thing that's important to keep in mind in the match, that, that, that definitely that time control had an adverse effect on the play. I think also that, you know, it's true that his openings were a little old-fashioned by the time, you know, 20 years had passed and, and, and he hadn't kept it to date quite as much on opening theory. But you can still see a lot of examples of his old brilliance. And I think that, um, you know, obviously he's not going to play in his 50s as well as he, you know, or he was around 50 as well as he did uh, uh, two decades earlier. But still he played very strongly. And I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting what Subtle say that, that, you know, he says, yes, I mean, you know, he's older, but but his his positional and strategic understanding of the game has definitely improved, and and so uh, I you know, on balance, I'm I'm glad he did play the match. Yeah, I mean, with Bobby in particular, the counterfactuals are always tough because it's always a, a mixed bag. You know, um, I mean, certainly he had other opportunities to make money, but that was a that was the one that he found palatable enough to pursue or as you mentioned in the book was motivated enough to pursue due to uh his love interest um so, so we've got um another patreon question um john this one you already touched on but there might be even more to to hit upon so this one is from uh from joe salmon so thanks for the question joe and joe asks he says I'm interested in Bobby as an instructor or teacher. Did he have prodigies and how did they go? Did, did he secretly second any players? You know, uh, well, I mentioned this, the Laco. That's the most prominent example. Uh, and keep in mind that when he worked with Laco, Laco was already like on the, either in or on the verge of being in the top 10 players in the world. Uh, so that would be one example. But another was uh, a player who did become a grandmaster, Michael Bezel. He's uh, from Germany, and his father operated a uh, uh, inn in, uh, I believe, in Bavaria. And uh, Bobby uh, spent uh, several months there. Uh, uh, I'm not sure whether it was before or after his uh, uh, courtship of uh, Petra uh, uh, Dautov. I think she was Petra Stapner then. Uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, he did work with uh, Bezold. Who, who has chosen, you know, as, as, as certainly as it's right to uh, be private about his relationship with Bobby. But it would be interesting to know, uh, you know, I'm, you know, one's very curious how, uh, uh, you know, Bobby mentored him. You know, what did he think was important? I, because we have some other clues of what Fisher might think of, you know, in terms of how he would have been a teacher through his old boy's life columns. But those were, you know, different lifetime. I mean, those were in the late 1960s. Uh, one thing that he uh, mentioned, I think, to one idea of how to improve was to pick up a copy of MCO. Right. And, yeah, and, yeah. and then just go through it from beginning to end. I think Frank Brady mentioned this. And then, when, yeah, and yeah, and I had asked him about that. Yeah, Frank, uh, one of Frank's famous stories. It's, uh, yeah, it's funny because no one would give that advice now. Right. But I think, you know, one thing that I only sort of, you know, discovered and sort of really, maybe I knew the information, but it just hadn't uh, percolated through in, in, in my brain, uh, was, you know, why would he have maybe uh, offered this advice, you know, which, as you say, is kind of uh, 
you know, not the way that, that, that pretty much any teacher today would recommend. And I, I can think of two possibilities. One, of course, is that he was taught that way by his first chess instructor, Carmine Negro. And the thing you have to realize with Negro is that, uh, you know, he worked with Bobby from the early 50s all the way up into 1956 when he moved to Florida, uh, was that he was very much a latecomer to the game. I mean, he didn't learn to play, that is, uh, Negro until he was, or Nigro, until he was in his late 20s. And he still got to be, you know, USCF rated expert, which is, you know, quite a good achievement. Uh, but Nigro was a, a very much by the book kind of guy. And the books that were available then were, uh, you know, MCO and Practical Chess Openings by Fine and Chess the uh, Chess Middle Game book by Fine and Basic Chess Endings. And he used those books uh, with Bobby and just kind of drilled them on those. And I know this because uh, Carmine's son, Bill, uh, who's referred to as Tommy sometimes, he, uh, he told me this. And he showed me because he still has these books in, in his personal library from his father. So I think that could be that influence could be one one reason. Another is that John Collins, uh, you know, he produced, uh, you know, with Walter Korn, but I think he played the major role. He produced MCO9. And so, again, uh, that would have been in the late 50s. I believe that came out. That could have been uh, another book that he used with Bobby. But yeah, I, I don't recommend that for anybody that's listening. I mean, there's definitely uh, uh, better ways to go about uh, trying to learn how to play. Yeah, I mean, as as I sort of alluded to when I talked to Frank, I mean, uh, the the main thing about Bobby and certainly struck in reading your book is just his voracious appetite for chess. I mean, which as you as you mentioned, he continued throughout his life despite uh, his not competing as much. He still just read everything he could get his hands on. Right. I mean, there's that famous interview that uh, originally, I think, first appeared in uh, No Regrets, uh, where uh, Bobby was in Argentina, I think, to promote uh, his uh, version of, uh, of, of uh, Chess 960. And he, he visits uh, Juan Morgado, the famous correspondence player's uh, bookstore. And, uh, you know, for Bobby, it's just like being a, a kid in a candy shop. and he, He's visiting old friends like the tournament book of San Remo and he's looking for new books. And, uh, and at a certain point, some of the, uh, uh, other, uh, uh, customers that are there who are obviously sort of starstruck, uh, they, they press upon him some gift of some obscure Argentinian correspondence magazine. And Bobby looks through it and he says, this is a serious magazine. These are annotations to the games. Uh, uh, so, you know, he was he was very much like Elokine in that, you know, he would pick up useful information, you know, in any way, shape or form, wherever he could find it. And that was a character yeah. throughout his life. Yeah. And and John, for, for any listeners wondering, I've seen this question come up a couple of times um, online and I know you've uh, you've addressed it. I can personally say, having read a lot of the the prior Kindle books that, that you wrote about Bobby Fisher, that there were I'm, there were only one or two instances where I, I recognized something. But how did you weave together your prior um, your prior research and publications on Fisher and this, which is kind of like the the magnum opus? You know, uh 
three of the ebooks were very uh, the format was very clear for them. One was dedicated just to the uh, tour in 1964 uh, that he made around the United States, Legend on the Road. It, it's appeared in print form a couple times, but this was like greatly expanded, uh, maybe double the size. Uh, another one was dedicated to his writings. And uh, uh, for example, one thing I could really advise readers to do if they haven't done already is to go to Chess Life. Around 1963 or so, he uh, was a very uh, frequent contributor to the magazine. It was edited by a fellow by uh, the name of Joe Reinhardt. Uh, and Bobby would come around to the USCF office, which at the time was located at 80 East 11th Street. And uh, Fred Wilson was also in this building, as was uh, Albert Bushke, the great book dealer. Uh, and Reinhardt would basically sit down and he would just uh, take notes and type up exactly what Bobby said. And uh, he gave Bobby carte blanche to write about whatever he wanted. And, and one of his subjects was the uh, match Steinitz played against uh, Italian player uh, Dubois. Completely obscure match. And Bobby like spent several you know issues of chess life, you know, must have been like about a dozen pages uh, giving his commentary on this match. Uh, you know, from a modern perspective. Uh, so uh, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, that, and then I think the third ebook was related to Fisher's uh, uh, non-tournament games. I, I tried to reconstruct, for example, the uh, simul tour he made of Argentina in 1970 after the Petrosian match. So those three ebooks, which could be a subject for a future book, a physical book, uh, they were very, you know, you know, very clearly structured, very uh, obvious format. But the other two books were a mess because what happened was since about 2008, I was doing research for this project and I was constantly finding new information. And uh, sometimes this information would directly contradict what I learned before. Uh, so it was almost... In a sense, it was almost worse that I, I did these ebooks and then tried, to, at first I tried to make them, you know, into a physical book, but it didn't really work that way. I ended up having to rewrite a large amount of it, uh, both to reflect, you know, new information that come in, my uh, changed uh, interpretation of some events in his life. And, you know, you know it, it was, it was, it was, I really thank Gwen also for kind of, you know, helping me to steer through that. My advice, uh, if I had to do it all over again, would just be to do all the research and wait to start doing the writing, you know, at the very end, uh, because this way it was almost, it, 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 it made it very tricky. Okay. Um, and I know like uh, Jesse Cry from Chess Dojo, Grandmaster Jesse Cry, when he interviewed you, he was mentioning how, like, how long you've been working on this book, how you've been like, uh, you know, declining social obligations for like a decade now because uh, because you're so ensconced in the Fisher research, um, which which again it definitely shows in the book. So is is this project put to rest, John, or is there more to come? Uh, well, there's there's always more to come with Bobby, and uh, uh, maybe some reader out there could could solve this mystery for me. Uh, one thing I'm very much concerned with is you know all 
things Fisher, all of his, you know, his personal artifacts, all of his, uh, uh, you know, things related to him. You know, my my dream is that someday, as I mentioned in the book, that they'll all somehow ended up at the World Chess Hall of Fame in St. Louis, which, by the way, has a lot of Fisher memorabilia, a lot of it. In fact, it is by far the best, uh, uh, you know, public institution in that regard, bar none. And there have been some really great uh, exhibitions the World Chess Hall of Fame has done. And uh, much of that material is available online, their website. You know, they do a really good job of archiving their exhibitions. So even if you couldn't be in St. Louis at the time, you can come back now and, 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 and see it afresh. Uh, but uh, the, 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 there's certain things, you know, I know that, for example, David DeLucia, as I mentioned in the book, he's done a magnificent job of rescuing many of Bobby's treasures, and he has put many of them in his books. Uh, in fact, he and his daughter have two books dedicated nothing but, but Bobby. Uh, and for uh, uh, a researcher who is uh, looking for uh, primary source material on, on Bobby, those books are, are like are fantastic. Uh, I know also that uh, Larry Finley, uh, who found uh, a whole bunch of Fisher memorabilia at a flea market shortly after it was auctioned off, uh, he has some of Fisher's treasures still remaining. But but there's still a lot of other stuff that, that's unaccounted for. And Delusha got much of his material from uh, Pal Benko, because what happened is that, uh, you know, around 1999 or 2000, uh, after Ellsworth had tried to buy up a lot of the material that had, you know, from the storage locker that had been auctioned off, uh, uh, there was a, the Snyder family. Harry Snyder was Bobby's very good friend, and he was his uh, physical trainer. They had met through the Worldwide Church of God, and Snyder's son took many of the items that Ellsworth was able to, uh, to get back from the auction, and he took it personally to Budapest. But you recall that around 99 or 2000, Fisher, he didn't, you know, he left for, for Japan. He left, he spent a lot of time in the Philippines. But to my knowledge, after about 2000, he never came back to Hungary. And so his, uh, his possessions were entrusted to Pal Banco. And uh, uh, I think some maybe possibly to Jano Shurigo, the Hungarian I am, who recently passed away. And um, fortunately, those items have not, you know, they were not thrown away. Uh, they ended up with dilution. And so, you know, that was a very good thing. But the thing I'm wondering if your readers can help me on is the following. In the early 1960s, uh, there was a, uh, Bobby sat down and he was uh, uh, sculpted by a Yugoslav uh, 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 artist. And uh, you can find this online. Uh, there's an image of it. And the question is, what happened to the sculpture? And, and here's what I know so far. The first thing is that the, the counting of this uh, 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 artwork, um, Serbian sources, says that Svetozar Gligorich brought it to the United States in 1963 and gave it to Bobby. And it looks like it's really. Uh, too big to, to transport, but according to uh, Sarah Snyder's, Harry Snyder's widow, uh, this sculpture, the image you see in the 
in the in the photograph uh, shows a work in progress, and it was actually trimmed down, if you will, and so it actually fit in a, a you know like a roller bag. And in '63, Gligorich, of course, played in the Piatigorsky Cup, but that was in Los Angeles. I mean, it's conceivable that the flight uh, to LA uh, transited New York, and Bobby picked it up then, but. Gligorich didn't just play in the Piatgorsky Cup. He also played in the U.S. Open that year. And he also played in the New England Open in, in, uh, in Massachusetts that September. So now we're getting much closer to New York. And he could easily have uh, flown out of New York. So I'm, I'm confident that Bobby got it. Then Bobby moves in the late 1960s to Los Angeles. So you're wondering, like, well, the sculpture, like, did it, did it survive? And uh, it looks like it did. And, and, and I base that on, on two facts. One is that in some of Fisher's uh, extremely hard to listen to uh, uh, rants that he gave in those radio interviews, you know, they're just so painful to listen to where he, you know, he's detailing all of the possessions he lost. He mentions a bust of himself. And then to further confirm it, uh, Sarah Snyder says she distinctly remembers her son bringing it to Budapest. So think about that sculpture. It went from Serbia, you know, from Belgrade to, to New York to uh, to Los Angeles to uh, Budapest. And, and now I'm wondering, you know, what happened to it? It, it was a very wow. nice work. And I'm curious where, you know, where, where it went to. Yeah. If any listeners have any information, that would be amazing to come across. Um, yeah, the, the mysteries never end. An, another mystery I have is, uh, is James Gore. Uh, Gore was a very strong master. He was like, you know, at least 2350-ish and uh, maybe even stronger. And he was said to have been a very close friend and a very uh, big influence on Bobby in uh, his formative years. Uh, the last we know of Gore is that when they had that... Uh, Blitz tournament I mentioned earlier at the Manhattan Chess Club in uh, 1970. It was a, a, a little, I want to say maybe August. It was after the match with uh, 71, it had to be, because it was after the match with uh, Larson. So it was 70. Yeah, 71, it would have been. Uh, uh, after that match, they had this Blitz tournament, and Gore played in it. And that's the last I've ever heard of James Gore. I mean, it's not an uncommon name. There, there are several James Gores still listed in New York. He could still be alive. I mean, it's quite, quite possible. Uh, it'd be very interesting to uh, uh, hear from him. Uh, of course, the, the biggest uh, trove of Fisher material that's not readily available to the public is in, at the Marshall Chess Club. And that's you know, all these game scores uh, that, you know, again, I, I'm not exactly sure the, the history, but I believe it's as follows. Uh, in the fall of 1960, uh, Regina moved out of the apartment at Lincoln Place uh, in, uh, uh, in Brooklyn, uh, not far from the uh, Brooklyn Public Library in Prospect Park. And when she did so, uh, she knew she was going to be gone for a couple of years. Uh, she was going on a, a peace march uh, for nuclear disarmament from San Francisco to uh, New York to London, all the way to Moscow. Uh, and I could imagine that she 
quite correctly thought the idea of leaving all the family uh, records with a 17-year-old uh, Bobby was probably not the prudent thing to do. And so I would imagine that she gave them uh, for safekeeping to uh, her daughter uh, and to uh, uh, her son-in-law. So Joan uh, and uh, Russell Targ were given them. And then they moved from New York uh, at some point in the 1960s to uh, Northern California near Stanford and Palo Alto. And they uh, likely, like many people that, you know, have family records and things like that, they put it in the attic. And it sat there. And it sat there for a very, very long time until sometime in the last decade, uh, uh, Russell Targ very generously donated the items to the uh, Marshall Chess Club. And so the, what they consist of uh, uh, is uh, all things Fisher. So a lot of it uh, was the basis for uh, Joseph Ponoroto's uh, psychobiography of Bobby Fisher. It, you know, it talks about the, uh, the Fisher family history. For example, one thing we learned uh, from this, that uh, from these records, is that Bobby's uh, grandmother uh, died in a mental institution. Very, very sad. Uh, there's a, a lot of, of, of family information that's available there, but there's but for chess players, what's really the the, the creme de la creme is that there's a uh, hundred score sheets and 50 of them, as I mentioned in the book, are really, you know, just kind of plain vanilla. They're carbons that Bobby was given when he played in uh, grandmaster tournaments. Um, as typical for most events of that type, you know, there would be a, a original score sheet on top, there'd be a carbon below, the original goes to the uh, uh, organizer and the carbon goes to the, the player. So those score sheets, you know, don't really add a lot to chess history. I mean, the only thing that's interesting about them is to check. Occasionally, you'll see a game that's in, uh, you know, uh, either the, the book by O'Connell or Wade or, or more recently the Hans, uh, the Karsten Muller book, you know, which is a collection of all Fisher's games, and, and there'll be a discrepancy in the move order in a game. But uh, what's really special about this is there's 50 games that Fisher played from roughly 1955 to 57 that have never been published. You know, there, there are games from the Mutulovich match that he played his training before the Arizona in uh, uh, Porto Rose. Uh, there's uh, uh, games that he played uh, from domestic tournaments in the United States, training games he played against uh, Anthony Sadie and, and uh, uh, Jack Hans. Some of those games I do have in the book only because I was able to get them from another source. For example, uh, uh, the uh, John Collins, his papers are at the library in Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, that had some really, really, it had some photos and it had some game scores I haven't seen anywhere else. Uh, so hopefully one day, you know, uh, those games will you know, see the light of day. I, I understand, and I explain in the book some, you know, the, the, the challenges the Marshall as a nonprofit institution that, you know, has to think out for its its uh, survival. 
you know how 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 they you know they they have to. It's a, it's a difficult situation that they're in, but hopefully one day those game scores will will be available because they're they're not just like junky games. Bobby was already like you know twenty three hundred ish player for most of them, it's stronger in some cases. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Something else to to uh, look out for. Um, so I just had one or two more questions on on the book, John. One thing I really uh, I really liked um, is there you get a lot of sort of contextual information about like American chess history in particular, whether it be like uh, the Latvian diaspora, um, the the Karklins and Victor's Popols, and uh, all of the strong Latvian players that made their way to to the U.S. and sort of uh, had brushes with Fisher. And I love the essay you exerted from uh, Jerry Hankin who was kind of a well-known chess columnist, um, uh, you know, in the 90s that I used to read regularly. And I didn't know that he had started chess as as an adult, uh, or as a, I mean, around age 20, I believe, if I remember correctly from your book. Um, and that got me thinking, I, you know, obviously I interview a lot of people, John, who, who achieve a lot of chess improvement as an adult. And there were several that came up in your book that I wasn't aware of. And as sort of like one of the leading experts on U.S. chess, I was just curious who who you can think of as like the people who uh, achieve the most rating-wise who learn chess like after the age of 20 or around the age of 20. Well, you know, in the case of Rubenstein, uh, he learned to play a little bit earlier. But he certainly got off to a late start by uh, today's standards. He's probably like you know, 16 or so. Uh, but that didn't stop him from obviously being number two in the world at, at, at one point behind Lasker. Uh, I know that I've, I've read that uh, Mihai Shuba, the uh, great Romanian right. master, yeah. he didn't start playing, if, if I understand it correctly, until he was in his 20s. Uh, you know, there aren't too many examples. Uh, to my knowledge of, of modern day players who started so late. Uh, you know, it's funny, you have to put it in perspective. For example, like Magnus, he, if I understand, you know, learned to play, he learned the rules of the game when he was about five, but I don't believe his first tournament, he was about like, you know, several years after that. Yeah. And, and playing your first tournament like nine now, you're like an old man. So yeah, I, I'm trying to think of somebody I know who, I mean, Abe Turner would be one example of a player. He didn't learn how to play until he was an adult. He came uh, after the Second World War, and Turner, who I described, you know, I mentioned in the book. I mean, he, you know, he had a lifetime plus score against Bobby, and he, uh, you know, he was certainly 2,400 plus fide. You know, so Turner, you know, who sat, you know, suffered a very, you know, tragic end. I mean, I, you know, he was murdered by a fellow employee at Chess Review, and uh, he, uh, he's, he's definitely one person that's been. Okay, yeah, maybe I'll. Uh, w- we can brainstorm more and try to come up with some more well, names because I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure there are some cases, but that I mentioned, for example, that uh, Nigro, you know, became an expert. When he, you know, he started playing when he was about 30 years old, and that sounds like a very modest accomplishment. But for anybody that's learned to play as an adult, you know, that that's that's really good. I mean, it's really good. I mean, it's very very difficult. You know, I remember once uh, Alex Shavalov, you know, gave a uh, talk at the Mechanics Institute, and he stressed the importance of of learning to play 
young that you know that it was such a more natural process that as he put it you know gradually your the cement starts to harden in your brain and the learning becomes <laughs> that much more difficult yeah for sure yeah becoming an expert as an adult is is a great achievement um Okay, John, we're going to take another break and I hear from our friends at chessmood.com and we will be right back. Perpetual Chess is happy to be brought to you in part by our longtime friends, but new sponsor, ChessMood.com. If you didn't catch episode 192 with their founder, GM Avtek Gregorian, you should listen to it to see what he's about. ChessMood is a subscription-based website with courses covering opening repertoires for white and black, covering middle game mastery, end game mastery, and more. They also have lots of free content, such as a ChessMood blog with written features by grandmasters about stuff like chasing the 3000 blitz rating and how to improve your chess and your mental game. Uh, They have on YouTube now daily lessons with the grandmaster that you can check out and subscribe for free. So there's lots to check out and I'll put all the links you need in the show notes. But the bottom line is go to chessmood.com and have a look around if you have not already. Okay, let's get back to the interview. And we are back. And John says he has just thought of another um, accomplished adult improver. So, John, who did you just think of? Uh, I thought of Bernard Zuckerman. He doesn't meet your strict criteria, but uh, one way to describe his, the beginnings of his chess career is that he was born in, Mar- in uh, March of 1943, like Bobby Fischer, but he was a few weeks younger. And as he describes it, Bobby Fischer was U.S. champion before he had actually even started to play. So I don't think Zuckerman started to play until 1958-ish or so. And uh, uh, despite that handicap, you know, within a half dozen years, Zuckerman was playing and making a plus score in the U.S. championship. And uh, uh, I know that Bobby uh, at one point was uh, interviewed in the early 1960s by uh, some Soviet chess journalists, and they asked him, you know, like, you know, what American player is uh, uh, really impressing you, is really making fast improvement these days? And he uh, he pointed to Zuckerman. And I should just say that uh, for any of you lis- listeners that are not familiar with his name, uh, you know, he's arguably one of the very strongest American players never to become a grandmaster. I mean, he's like 2,500 feet a, and, uh, uh, but more so than his uh, playing abilities was his just knowledge of the game. He was uh, a tremendous scholar. Uh, you know, people, you know, Zook the book, they call him for his knowledge of opening theory, but his understanding wasn't just limited to the openings. He had a, a very profound uh, knowledge of uh, in-game theory. Uh, he just had a tremendous chess culture, if you will, and uh, uh, he was some one of the very few people that Fisher would really talk chess with in the 1960s. And he was one of the few people that Fisher would play blitz with because he was one of the few people that could actually, you know, give him a game, if you will, in the United States. Uh, Zuckerman, even up until the uh, early 1990s, I think he was playing at Susan Pogard's place in Regal Park. He was a terrific blitz player. And uh, uh, so I think he's a good example of somebody who, uh, uh, despite a late start, you know, showed that it was still possible to make a huge improvement. 
Yeah, there's there's so many examples. And uh, yeah, I, I wish it were all tracked and documented in a more comprehensive way. But it's good good to have people like you to lean on in the in the meantime, John. Um, so one other topic that I don't think we've talked about much in our prior interviews, John, is uh, your your time publishing the or co-editing with uh, Yasser Sarwan, the illustrious magazine uh, Inside Chess. Um, so it's probably going to be before a lot of listeners' times, but could you just like uh, tell us a few highlights of that experience and how you reflect on it these days? Well, uh, you know, in the late 1980s, I think it was about 1987 in the fall, uh, Yasser Sarawan, uh, you know, who I've known since I was uh, from my earliest days in chess in, in 1972, we both grew up in the Pacific Northwest. He lived in Seattle and I lived in Tacoma. So we, we've always known each other, and I was honored to be his second when he won the World Junior in 1979, and I, I went to, to many tournaments uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, he conceived this idea to have uh, uh, a new uh, uh, magazine, and to put things in perspective, uh, there had been a precedent. There was a magazine that came from Los Angeles called Players Chess News. And uh, it, it existed in uh, uh, as, a, as a sort of like an oversized newspaper, if you will. And uh, there were two editions of it. One concentrated on recent tournaments and you know, there would be annotated games and there would be cross tables. And the other was devoted purely to theory. It was called Theory and Analysis. And these two publications uh, uh, had a number of... Uh, of, of well-known chess players working for them. For example, uh, Grandmasters uh, Larry Christensen and uh, James Tarjan were both editors at one point. Uh, International Master Jeremy Sullivan was an editor. Another was uh, uh, Vince McCambridge, who's also on my short list of like the strongest American IMs never to become a GM. He was like in the high 2400s BA for, for quite a while uh, and stopped playing relatively early. Um, I also served as a uh, uh, editor at, at, at uh, Players Chess News, but by uh, the end of 1987, it, it had gone belly up, and, and, and it had been struggling for some years. Uh, and what Yasser envisioned was something more ambitious. Uh, it would be a combination of, uh, of of recent chess information. It would have uh, feature articles. It had book reviews. It would have uh, theoretical articles. Uh, and it would come out every two weeks. Uh, and, and that's the, the schedule it began with in, in the beginning of 1988. And I must say that uh, this was really uh, a very generous thing of Yasser to do from several respects. Uh, first, uh, uh, if you want to become rich, don't start a chess magazine. <laughs> yeah, it's a polite way to put it, yeah. Uh, but, but he did provide the livelihood for a, a number of individuals uh, over the course of uh, you know dozen years. Uh, also, you know if you want to become the very best possible player you can be, uh, if you want to you know you know be a world championship contender, uh, don't publish a chess magazine. You know Yasser quickly became an expert on uh, second class mailing permits. And, you know <laughs> you know it was just it was but you know. Yasser decided, you know, that, you know, he didn't want to just live in Europe and just concentrate on his chess. He wanted to see 
uh, American Chess Develop, and he wanted to do what he could do to promote it and be part of that. And so he chose to base himself in the United States, uh, although I think his career as a professional player, uh, you know, was sacrificed to, 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 to a certain extent as a result of that. Uh, the, uh, the magazine, uh, I think, was very well received. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, they had contributors from around the world. Uh, but gradually, as, you know, as you know, the Internet became a more powerful presence in people's lives, it, uh, it became uh, a bit problematic, uh, you know, to justify for, you know, everybody in the country, they're getting their first magazine is going to be Chess Life. That's, uh, you know, part of their membership in the Federation. And then for many people in the country, a regional magazine in the Northwest, for example, it was Northwest Chess, is their second magazine. So this was like the third magazine. And, and, and remember also that this period that it appeared also overlapped with New and Chess. So it was really, uh, it was becoming more and more difficult to, to justify it, I think, uh, financially. Uh, but what I can say is that um, the issues are available. Uh, you, you know, it had a pretty good circulation. So loose issues are, are floating around pretty much everywhere. And it was also, uh, I think Hannon Russell, when he bought out Yasser's stock, I think he did a, uh, uh, he scanned all the issues. And so I, I believe they're available digitally as well. And that could be through Chess Cafe. Now, I'm not sure exactly, but what I can say is that certain uh, parts of that magazine can still be read with great interest. I would say that the uh, opening theoreticals could be safely skipped, but uh, the uh, game annotations by Yasser were, were really, really first rate. I would say that, uh, uh, you, know, you know, for people interested in chess history, the interviews were usually quite good. Uh, but uh, there were also there was also a couple columns that were outstanding. Alexander Baborin had an in-game column that you know has not really aged, and Nikolai Minev had a tactics column, some of which were made into a book, but but some articles were not there. There's a place on the web called uh, like the Chess Library. It's done by uh, Phil McCready, and it's uh, a test testimonial to uh, Nikolai Minev, who he was Minev's student, and I think all the articles that Minev wrote, or at least a number of them, are on that website. And, uh, uh, you know, that would be uh, a good place for anybody who's looking for uh, material and sharpening their tactics to go to. And it's, it's pretty. Okay, good stuff. Yeah, I my subscription as a kid was on and off, John, but the Shahadi's got it. Mike Shahadi had a subscription, so I would always look forward to uh, to grabbing it when I was at their house. Yeah, no, I have fond memories. At that time, Yasser was often a visitor to the Shahi home when Greg and uh, Jen were growing up. Uh, he actually did a series of, uh, of chess videos for a guy called Stan Nakarada that, and he produced those while he was in Philadelphia. So he lived in Philadelphia at my parents' home. Yasser did for a bit. My father was the, was the director of the Philadelphia Zoo at the time. Yeah, I, I worked at the zoo as a teenager, so I knew that, but I, somehow I didn't know that Yasser had lived there. Not in the zoo, mind you, but in, uh, but in my... Right, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, not in the zoo. Yeah. Um, good stuff. So, John, um, last time we talked, we also touched a little bit on your playing. You were at least were 
like a lot of us, you had um, you had some ambition of uh, of getting back to over the board. Obviously, no one for the most part has been able to do that um, in the past year. But uh, now that um, this book has been published, uh, do you have any thoughts of um, getting getting back to OTB play when it's permissible? Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, uh, right now, I'm still finishing up a, a couple of, uh, small projects. One thing I uh, uh, was entrusted with over the years was a number of uh, dear friends who passed away. They gave me their uh, chess archives, and uh, uh, you know, a lot of interesting materials, a lot of interesting uh, photos and 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 writings and and. Uh, uh, obscure regional magazines and so i'm in the process of of, of trying to organize and, and and deciding you know which would be like good candidates to donate to the world chess hall of fame uh i don't want to just i like you know i feel kind of embarrassed some of these people passed away like five or ten years ago and i i, I want to make sure that, that that these treasures that they they safeguarded that they you know are are, are preserved and uh so I'm, I'm, but I'm down to it. It's like, it's like maybe another month of this. But I have signed up my uh, dear friend Mark Pino. Uh, he asked me to play in the U.S. amateur team, so I will play uh, in the U.S. amateur team West. Uh, 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 you know, online event that's coming up like in about ten days. But uh, <laughs> Mr. Wilson, I'm a little bit nervous about my play, and I and I don't play online. So, but for Mark, how could I say no? Wow, yeah, even even venturing into the online waters, I, I commend you, John. I uh, I'll play the I'll play Blitz online, but I'm I'm not bothering with the tournaments. But I am uh, looking forward to to playing OTB when when that becomes um completely safe. Um, so you know, obviously, you've written many books in addition to your chess history work on opening theory. Um, so. How do you keep up with? I mean, I know you've been busy with this project, but if you if you were to study now, how would you adjust for modern times? What what would you what would your routine be like, John? Well, I think one thing I have to acknowledge is that fact that you know I haven't really played regularly. I've played occasionally for like the last ten years, uh, but they're mostly like in regional tournaments, you know, where opening preparation isn't that that critical, uh, you know multiple days games in one day pairings put up a few minutes before the round starts but obviously if one wants to be more ambitious uh catching up to date on opening theory is uh it's you know it's near the top of the list uh i think for most of your listeners that you know especially those below 2000 that shouldn't be where their priority lies but that regrettably is <laughs> you know when when one has to deal with that at, at, at a certain level uh, I think also a thing I would definitely be doing every day is spending, you know, at least an hour studying tactics. And there's so many good resources out there now. I think the only real uh, choice that listeners have to make is that there seems to be sort of like uh, two types of tactics books out there. And when I say books, I realize that I'm, I'm counting like electronic works in that rubric. I would say that um, for less experienced players, they really benefit uh, uh, from having tactics books where there's uh, the first few pages of each chapter introduce the theme and where there's uh, some prose explanation and then it goes on to the exercises to solve. I think for more advanced players, they could go straight to solving the exercises. But I think for for uh, those that are on the way up, that they, they, 
they, they were better served by the uh, uh, the books that have part explanation and then exercises. And there's a new one out by Thinkers Publishing uh, that's by uh, a young Hungarian grandmaster who I believe is a student at Webster. His name's escaping me. Prochaska, I think it is. Yeah, and Peter Prochaska. Yeah. Bros. Okay. And I don't know how to say it, but yeah, I know but, who you mean. Yeah, and that you know it, it, that also it, it seems to be to me a kind of a fascinating situation now. I mean, the guy's like I don't know, maybe like twenty six thirty or something like that. Fide, he's a very strong player, uh, you know, and and he's not even thirty, but he's wanting to you know you know write and and teach you know uh these days uh uh times have changed you know i think from a practical standpoint i think that unless you're like i don't know maybe like 2700 uh trying to derive drive your livelihood from just playing is pretty problematic and 2700 might not be the right number maybe 2750 is uh Especially with the pandemic, that it's become you know even more more of an issue uh, because they don't have all the team tournaments they played in the past as a, as a resource to keep one's head above water. But uh, you know, I see like he's not the only student at Webster that's doing this. I saw that uh, Creekland, I think Yuri Creekland. Yuri, yeah, he's been on the show. Yeah, right. he's prolific. So so again, you know, and he you know he's I think even younger. Uh, so. Uh, I think what it what it points to is that it seems to me that uh, both writing and uh, teaching are becoming more professional in the sense that uh, the, the, the the standards are being raised constantly, and uh, uh, you, you're getting more people involved that are ambitious that really want to do a good job. And uh, I alluded to earlier that that the list of candidates for the best books for 2020, and uh, it was no modesty on my part to say. I mean, there's like you know, I mean, I look at there's so many good books that were published this last year. I mean, it used to be like maybe, you know, one or two good books would come out in a decade. And then it was like every maybe couple of years, a couple of good books would be published. But nowadays, there's just it's like a, a, a torrent. And, a, and I'm, I'm talking about non-opening books for the most part. Uh, I, I mean, opening book standards are obviously much better than they were in the past. But they tend to have a much smaller shelf life. Uh, my favorite publishers are, you know, quality chess has to be like number one, but but all of them are, are, are getting better and better. Thinkers Publishing uh, from Belgium, New and Chess, uh, Everyman from England. Uh, in the United States, Russell Enterprises, you know, they published the book on, uh, the first book on Smyslov and, uh, there were a couple other books just recently that came out that I thought that were pretty good as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, you're sort of spoiled for choices now. So in terms of like my, what my training will be is, you know, I'll definitely, you know, try to improve my, uh, uh, you know, refresh my tactical ability and, and, tr and try to do a lot of end game studies. So, you know, sharpen my calculating ability and I'll uh, try to work over my, uh, opening repertoire and I'll also try to be going through like these two new books uh by Boris Gelfand but uh uh it sounds like you know I could easily spend you know five or six hours a day uh you know uh so we'll see what you know what's possible for an old dog
Yeah, well, it would be it would be well deserved to spend that time after the the magnitude of this project. Um, so uh, dare I ask, John, uh, like, do you have another um, major project in mind? Are you are you writing a Fisher follow up? Are you going to focus on your chess? What's uh, other than sorting through um, the the things that were passed along to you that you mentioned? Do you do you have an idea of what your next major project will be? Yes, I think it will be with. Uh... Uh, I'll, on this one, I'll work with Eric Tangborn, my longtime friend who's an international, fellow international master from the Scone Chess Club, and we'll be trying to uh, 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 put those ebooks that I mentioned, uh, uh, the other three, the, the uh, Fisher's writings, his, uh, 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 his uh, non-tournament games, if you will, and uh, try to bring those to life and try to uh, preserve them as well as they can be. I mentioned that Fisher uh, wrote a long-running column for uh, Chess Life in the early 1960s, but he also did annotations for other magazines that kind of appeared here and there. He like, I remember he annotated a game for uh, the Israeli magazine uh, when he played in Netanya in the late 60s. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he did other annotations here, here and there that 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 are interesting. You know, I mean, anything, anytime somebody like at that level uh, writes about chess, you know, it's good stuff. Uh, that reminds me, one thing I wanted to mention because uh, uh, we mentioned uh, uh, we talked about. I'm just trying to go back to what we said exactly. We mentioned Jerry Hankin, and we also mentioned. Uh, uh, you know, his relationship with Bobby in the early 1960s. And uh, now that I hear about, I mentioned Netanya, which is where he played in, a, in the late 1960s, uh, it brings up a theme. And the theme is that, is this. And basically the question is, you know, when did Bobby go over to the dark side? And what I mean by that is, when did uh, Bobby sort of develop his... Uh, fascination with, uh, uh, you know, anti-Semitic topics. And I've read a couple of places, you know, like, you know, Donner and uh, maybe Pal Benko. They mentioned that, you know, Fisher was reading, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler-related literature, uh, you know, even in the 1950s. But I think that Hankin explains it much better. Uh, he explains that it wasn't so much that Bobby was anti-Semitic uh, at the time, say, for example, of his match in 1961 with Wyshevsky, because I don't believe he was, and Hankin doesn't either. I think he was more sort of fascinated with Hitler as a personality and, and, and kind of grabbing onto power. And uh, that makes sense, because then when you go to the late 1960s, how else to explain Fisher playing in a tournament in Israel and spending a week at a, a kibbutz? It doesn't give it. It doesn't make sense that if what his position was in the, in the late fifties, you know, translate to a decade later. I think that his his feelings that he had, uh, you know, when he sort of went to the dark side. I think it was in the nineteen seventies. I don't think it was when he was a kid growing up. Okay. Yeah. There's. It's yeah. It's hard to pin down. I mean, he was a. Uh you know, the, the, the whole church of God thing is, uh, yeah, foreshadows, uh, his, his deeper dive off the deep end later. But, um, 
but but yeah, I mean, I it's hard hard to say. Right, it's, it's definitely complicated, and of course, there, n- nobody's you know internally consistent hundred percent. I mean, you know, that would be asking quite a bit. But but in his case, uh, I would say he's more complicated than most people, and. There's, of course, also the issue of how he deals with people individually and how he deals with the world at large. And individually, he had many Jewish friends, and he, you know, that was true throughout pretty much most of his life. Uh, but his worldview definitely changed uh, over the course of time. That was for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, John, I think we can leave it there. Um, so is there going to be, just for listeners wondering, obviously the uh, the paperback book, as you mentioned, is being reprinted. It's a pretty um, substantial paperback book. Is there going to be a Kindle version? Um, I believe what? that, I believe that uh, Gwen Feldman, uh, my publisher, you know, Silman James, who published all of Jeremy Silman's books and also uh, Jennifer Shahadi's Chess Bitch, uh, they... She there will be an ebook at some point. I'm not sure exactly what she has in mind, but but there definitely will be. And I should also say that my book is also good if you uh, if your triceps are are, are slightly soft, <laughs> you'll find that it's very useful for doing curls. And also, if you have any drafty state areas of your home, it it, it works as a great book stop as well. Yes, yeah, 630 pages strong, but. But I enjoyed every page of it. And uh, John graciously sent me his book. So as I teased earlier, listeners, we're going to do another book giveaway. Um, this time I'm going to give away two books. So here's how it's going to work. And by the way, I should mention in the uh, Tarakov interview, the winner was Scott from British Columbia. Thank you to everyone who wrote the reviews. Um, about 10, 10 to 12 of you sent me the reviews as you were instructed. If you chose to participate in this contest, sent me a screenshot of the review. But it, a lot of reviews popped up that no one sent me anything. So if anyone wrote a review and didn't email to me but was intending to participate in the contest, you can email me, ben at perpetualchesspot.com with that review um, to enter this book giveaway. And also repeat, like new, you can enter again. As I mentioned, you can do a review more than once. And this time we're going to open it up beyond Apple Podcasts. I want to shamelessly court positive reviews everywhere. And by the way, you can say negative things as long as you give me five stars. So I don't mind. I don't mind if you're negative. If you if you give some constructive criticism, but it has to be uh, disguised with uh, the the precious five stars. So anyway, write a review on any platform other than YouTube. A YouTube comment doesn't cut it. Um, and mail a screenshot to Ben at perpetualchesspot.com, and I will announce the winner via emails or the winners on February fourteenth, uh, I believe. Um, somewhere, February 16th, somewhere in that neighborhood. And then I will announce it on a subsequent uh, show as well. So John, sorry to make you sit through that, but but we got to buy a couple of your books after all of your work. So uh, try to try to get them into the chess community. Um, and John, you mentioned, of course, that there's still a few facts that you're trying to, tr- to track down. So if anyone wants to to reach out to you um, with, with some information or just some feedback, um, what, what's the best way for them to do that, John? Uh, they can uh, send me an email to the following address, imwjd at aol.com. And the IM is for International Master. And my first name is actually William, as my father and grandfather were, but I've always gone by John. So it's International Master William John Donaldson, imwjd at aol.com. 
Okay, excellent. Yeah, and I'll, I'll drop that in the show description as well. Um, John, and I think that's everything. Thanks as always. I always learn so much talking to you and uh, congratulations on uh, an, an excellent book. Well, thank, thank you very much. And thank you for having me, Ben. And one last thing I can say, that Terracon book on Smyslov, it's really, really good. And I can strongly recommend it. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. I always, you know, as you were alluding to, John, I mean, a lot of the, the, the authors you've mentioned have been on the show. <laughs> I always feel like I'm raving about the uh, their books. Like, I feel like, um, I'm, you know, listeners might think I'm grading on a curve or something, but everything's everything's been so good lately that it's uh, that I, I speak from the heart when I uh, when I lavish these books with praise, including your own. Right. And I can say you mentioned, but I, I would second it also Stuart Rachel's book. Uh, I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, you know, it brought back a lot of memories. Uh, uh, I knew Stuart when he was a kid. I actually was a second for him and Patrick Wolfe at the World Junior in Adelaide back in a different lifetime. Uh, and so uh, I was really glad to see him do that. And I hope there are more, uh, you know, grandmasters, international masters write books of that type. Yeah, and I've got to try to track more of those people down, more of the um more of the uh the people who may may not be fully immersed in chess right now but have some amazing stories. Um okay, well John, it's been a lot of fun. Uh got to tend to my children. So uh so uh, have a good day and um and yeah, the congratulations again. Well, thank you very much and thanks again for having me. Thanks as always to my producer Matthew Passy and to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, telling your friends, writing positive reviews on podcast platforms, all of that stuff helps. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Beneficial1. Join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can find the link on the website and we are back in action on Instagram at Perpetual Chess, sharing a weekly clip from the podcast. So follow us over there as well. But of course, the main purpose of these credits is to thank everyone who makes the show possible by their financial support. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would have ceased to exist a long time ago. And for that, I am forever grateful and work to continually improve and expand the offerings from Perpetual Chess. So without further ado, I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Deaths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, Derek Jones, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfs, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gulick, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jeff Martinson, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, The Famous Mr. Dodgy, The Nerd Nays Twitch Channel, Peter Sodi, The Playmore Chess Academy of the Hampton Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, The Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, 
Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Payhouse, FM Andre Terokov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explain, Coach J's Chess Academy, Corey Budson, Costa Chorus, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Decker, FM Donnie Ariel, Douglas Matthew, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Emmanuel Langlois, Robitai, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Indrick Ryland, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavoie, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schut, Harish Renivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovacs, Jacob Turan, Jacques Perry, James Espinwall, James Banastia, James Muir, Jason Willem, J.G. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, John Tully, Juan Almaguer, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurty, Jonathan Slater, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, WGM Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Boyce, Kevin Pryor, Kior Gada of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostya Kavutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Mark Miller, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Tempo, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbuck, Robert Tichi, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Walder, Shane Unger, the Sil- Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William H. Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of of chess1000.com and of course Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening everyone. We will be back next week with another episode of Perpetual Chess. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.